My name is Uday Goyal. I'm one of the uh, co-managing partners of uh, APIS Partners. And uh, I thought what we'd do today, uh, firstly, we're very pleased to be here in Cape Town. And uh, I wanted to give a big thank you to 227 for letting us have their beautiful theater um, for this, for this uh, event. I think it's pretty unique what we've got together here. Uh, we have over 30 founders, CEOs, um, over the course of the day talking about their businesses and talking about the future of financial services in Africa. And the future of financial services in Africa is something that we at APIS are pretty passionate about. Um, when Matteo and I set up the fund um, uh, just about, uh, just less than a year ago, uh, we believed that the real future of global financial services was going to come out of the developing markets, and in particular, Africa and South Asia. Um, and at the very corner and the heart of that strategy uh, was the thought that a lot of the real innovation that's going to come into that industry is going to come, into, it's going to come from markets that uh, have to innovate out of necessity, uh, not out of evolution. Um, and that's basically what we started to see uh, rapidly happen. And so our entire investment thesis actually is based around that concept. It's based around the concept of there are very interesting companies in these markets. Um, that do things uh, slightly differently or radically differently. Um, and as they do that, they actually reinvent entirely um, <clears throat> how business should be done in financial services. Um, and that's, that, that disruptive uh, technology and the whole idea of disruption was at the heart of my previous um, uh, incarnation as an investor at Anthemis Group, uh, where we invested in 29 uh, early stage companies across the world, including uh, companies like Simple, um, uh, which we sold to BBVA, uh, Moven, which is a new bank based out of New York, um, and uh, Fedor Bank in Germany, and then there are a bunch of other uh, investments that we've done there. So um, let me just do this. So um, maybe just a very, very quick, so, so with that, a quick introduction to what we do at APIS. Uh, we are a specialist growth equity provider in financial services. Um, we focus on Africa and South Asia. Uh, we're about, um, um, we have teams across, basically based in London, but we have local operating and investment partners in five jurisdictions, and including Guana, who represents us in East Africa. Um, we are um, a very experienced team who've only really done financial services for the last 20 years, um, right across the board. And uh, in my last iteration, before I left the banking industry, I was global head of financial technology at, uh, at Deutsche Bank. Um, and prior to that at Credit Suisse and, and DLJ. So has, have been uh, transacting in this industry for a, a long time. So uh, let's get to the uh, heart of the topic. I mean, we, as I mentioned to you, have this relationship with uh, Anthemis Group, and Anthemis Group is really interesting because um, I think globally Anthemis Group is now known to be the number one investor in early stage financial services and disruptive financial services. Um, I founded that business about six years ago. Uh, along with uh, my partner, Sean Park, and, and that continues to grow, and that, that vehicle will continue to invest in early-stage financial services as opposed to growth stage, which is what we do at APIS. Now, um, wh why is it that uh, these developed markets, uh, these developing markets are uh, interesting from a financial services perspective? Well, actually, uh, firstly, you have this income gap, um, and what, what the income gap creates is different needs. Um, today, if you go to most developed markets, the biggest issue with financial services 
is that the incumbent institutions are unable to service anybody below a certain price point or anybody below a certain point in the pyramid. Um, they actually aren't interested in doing that, largely because their legacy systems and the way that they've been built over the last 15 to 50 years, or in some cases 100 years, has been on a very different price point for their services. Um, and as a result, uh, there, are, uh, there are large swathes of people in these developed markets that are completely financially excluded. Um, it's quite hard to, to include them because those business models don't support it. Now, what's happening in many of the developing markets is that you actually start at a very different price point for the services that, that are provided to those, those customers. And as a result, you're able to build highly efficient structures um, and at a very, very different price as well as service point that allows you to get large swathes of the population um, as, as, as your customer base. Now, that we think is very interesting. I'm gonna try and get this thing working properly. And so, so as we think about that, um, you know, there's also a, uh, a very different distribution um, and infrastructure gap uh, between, these, between the developed and the developing markets. Um, I've used um, two uh, interesting metrics here, which a lot of people use. One is the number of bank branches uh, per 100,000 adults, and the other one is the number of ATMs per 100,000 adults. And what you see is a massive gap uh, between what is available in the developed world and what is available in the developing world. What that means is that distribution is very, very different in these markets. Um, and in fact, what we're finding is that distribution is going to become predominantly mobile-based and mobile-led um, and digital rather than physical. And you can actually start to see that when you look at the mobile cellular subscriptions per 100 adults where the, the gap between the developed markets and the developing markets is narrowed or indeed has actually disappeared altogether. Uh, what that means is that most adults in most populations in the developing markets have a cell phone. And increasingly, they don't just have a cell phone, they actually have smartphones because smartphone penetration is rising. And as data costs are coming down across these markets, people are actually using their smartphones, uh, which, by the way, has been a big issue in some of these markets. So we really are seeing a resurgence of some very, very interesting uh, usage patterns in these markets led by countries like, we were talking like countries like India, um, out here in Africa and South Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, many of these countries you're starting to see uh, a, an increasing usage of data, which, is, which signifies that people are using their phones increasingly to transact. Um, that's in addition, of course, to the traditional SMS and USSP structures which already exist in, in financial services in these markets. So, um, so, so basically, when you put these two things together, the income gap and the distribution and infrastructure gap, you are, do two things. You create quality financial services at a low price to serve the poor prof profitably, which is what we talked about earlier, and you find new and efficient means of delivering services. And so this is really the most fertile soil out there for developing these new business models. So um, now there are some very strong macro fundamentals as well that we need to think about in these growth markets. Uh, in particular, uh, real, real GDP growth is growing twice that of developed markets. Um, that's as the income gap starts to narrow. 
The population spread is increasing between the two markets, so it was one to two, um, but in, by 2020, it's going to be one to five. 90% uh, of the two and a half billion people um, uh, that are unbanked across the world reside in these growth markets. And actually, middle-class spending in these growth markets is going to con contribute more than 60% of global consumer spending. Uh, that's approximately double of what it is today. So, you know, those are pretty astounding statistics because you essentially create a very, very interesting growth market to, to develop products in. So we're really starting to see some of this. And I wanted to uh, talk, uh, talk through a number of different examples uh, around these, uh, these services and this innovation uh, that we're starting to see across the world. Um, and I'm going to focus on five or six areas and, and look at some very, very specific examples. So microfinance, agent banking, mobile money, prepaid, e-commerce, capital markets. Um, and in each one, I think there's some very, very interesting uh, growth market examples. So, so let's, uh, let's touch a little bit um, around microfinance. In microfinance, of course, you have a very interesting homegrown company here in South Africa uh, called Bima. Uh, you also have Grameen Bank. I'll go into Grameen Bank in a little bit more detail, but for those of you who don't know, Grameen Bank was founded by Muhammad Yunus uh, in Bangladesh and was the first real microfinance institution in the world. Um, around agent banking, you have last mile distribution networks like Suvida in India, which have almost 100,000 touch points, um, or Kiwi uh, based out in, in, um, in Russia. Uh, with mobile money, you have uh, companies, well, of course, everybody knows M-Pesa um, and, and, uh, and, and other companies like M-Pesa. Um, in the prepaid world, um, actually one of the great pioneers of prepaid is right here in South Africa based in Johannesburg, a company called NetOne, which is a NASDAQ-listed company worth over, uh, I think, a billion dollars at the moment in terms of market cap. I had the privilege of helping them go public on the NASDAQ um, uh, almost 15 years ago, 10 years ago. Um, and you know, they, they really pioneered the idea of biometrically-led prepaid uh, globally uh, with their technology. Um, of course, e-commerce, and you know, it's not a day you would, don't wake up and read about Alibaba and what Alibaba are doing. Um, out, in, out in China, and of course, capital markets. And capital markets, uh, we often don't think about, but uh, uh, what's very interesting is that um, the National Stock Exchange of India, the NSC, um, is actually the world's largest exchange by number of trades done in a day. Um, and that exchange was actually founded in 1992. Um, you know, uh, so for an exchange that's relatively young, it's overtaken the large behemoths like the CME or the New York Stock Exchange in terms of the number of trades done. So really tells you how quickly these businesses can scale. So um, of course, this has been supported by uh, a lot of factors uh, that will continue to make a huge impact. If we, you know, we talk about technolo technology. We see technology as the greatest enabler of this trend. Financial inclusion, where governments are increasingly interested in pushing financial inclusion as an agenda. And as a result, uh, they are actually thinking about favorable regulatory structures in order to allow that. And ultimately, what we're looking at is a way of changing consumer behavior. Because these new structures and these new services all require people to use them. And ultimately, it requires people to be habituated to these types of services. So, um, so therefore, um, we think that the growth market financial services providers really do have this edge for innovation. 
So uh, when you operate in a market with almost non-existent infrastructure, like some of these markets, uh, rather than competing, a lot of people cooperate. Um, and so there's this interesting dynamic that we start to see in these markets where competitors on the one level will compete on services, but will also co cooperate in order to build infrastructure between them. Um, they also, uh, a number of companies, don't really think about uh, selling services to consumers who are habituated to financial services because nothing, no legacy existed before then. I always liken this to um, uh, fixed line telephony. Um, I grew up in India, um, and as a child, uh, when I was living in Delhi, um, I, if I wanted to ring up somebody in the United States, I had to book the call with the post office. So you literally rang up the post office from your fixed line. You'd then say, I'd like a slot at 9 a.m. tomorrow to call New York. And you'd get your slot and the line at 9 a.m. New York. Now that must sound crazy to people today, where we all carry around a cell phone and fixed line telephony doesn't exist in most developing markets. Um, so really, that, that, that there's a sea change as a result of the lack of legacy. Um, and, and ultimately, as a result of any other distribution channel being unavailable, you end up in this concept of predominantly mobile-centric distribution. Um, so, what does that mean? That means that this bottom-up financial services development will increasingly translate into what we call reverse innovation. And what is reverse innovation? Uh, let's, let's think about that terminology for a second. Well, actually, um, reverse innovation can be defined as any innovation that's developed and adopted first in growth markets and then adapted and spread to developed markets. So the uh, phraseology was actually come up, came, come up by a couple of uh, academics, uh, Chris Trimble um, and, and Vijay Govindarajan, uh, who wrote a book called Reverse Innovation, uh, uh, a well-titled book called Reverse Innovation, and really called that the next phase uh, of globalization, because they truly believed that this was going to spur both efficiency and growth globally as a result of what they were going to, as a result of this trend. Um, and, uh, but then the question rises that why do we even need to export these new models of financial services to developed markets? I mean, what's the need? And I think what's interesting is everybody hears of Paul Volcker and the Volcker Act in the US. You know, Paul Volcker was a very, uh, important proponent at the Fed, did a lot. But one of the most interesting things that Paul Volcker said, um, and he said this uh, a few years ago, is that the only really useful thing banks have really invented in the last 20 years was the ATM, or is the ATM. Uh, banks are notoriously bad at innovating, um, particularly developed market banks, because um, unfortunately um, uh, for us, and fortunately for them, uh, once you have a very large balance sheet, you spend your time optimizing the way you can make money off your balance sheet rather than actually providing services to your consumers. And indeed, if, uh, if you look very closely into the reasons behind the global financial crisis, you know, that's at the heart of it. When you lose sight of who your customer is um, and are more interested in cycling cash um, and optimizing the return on that cash, uh, unfortunately, bad things happen. Um, and as a result of this, really, the global financial institutions have been very, very poor in, in innovating or providing anything interesting for their customers. Now, um, what is interesting is also what people consider to be interesting in developed markets. So, um, is a bank on wheels, on the le top left-hand corner, that's Royal Bank of Scotland, 
which puts a bank branch in a van, an innovation, um, I think it's pretty poor if you ask me, is Square an innovation? The ability to take uh, a card payment on a mobile point of sale? Actually, no, because I, th I would say the innovation would be to get rid of the card altogether and move to some form of a digital wallet. Um, is um, NFC an innovation? Now that we're talking about Apple and Apple actually pushing out Apple Pay, is NFC an innovation? I mean, these are fairly poor evolutionary uh, developments uh, for financial services. These are not revolutionary developments for financial services. So, so basically what you have is uh, a refinement of really existing technologies. You don't have anybody who's thinking completely out of the box. Um, so for those of you who don't know, uh, C.K. Prahlad, a very, very famous uh, economist, thinker, uh, somebody who has uh, really revolutionized business thinking. Um, I actually had the privilege of, of spending time with him before he died last year, but he's, uh, he's really a, an amazing man. And, and, one, and, and he basically said there are five ways in which growth markets lead to developed markets. Um, and that is, lead developed markets, that is basically affordability, so the availability of services that are affordable, the ability to leapfrog technologies, the ability to create these service ecosystems, the ability to create robust and highly scalable and resilient systems that don't break down, and, and the ability to add on applications onto services as they, as they start to be created. And these are ultimately huge catalysts for reverse innovation and are very, very applicable to financial services. So we're already witnessing this, and I wanted to then therefore focus on four very specific examples to give you a flavor of that. Um, if you think about alternative banking channels, probably um, the most interesting early stage innovation, um, and this goes back a while, of course now this is germane to us, was actually Denise Bank in Turkey. And Denise Bank in Turkey was the first ever bank in the world to offer access to bank accounts through Facebook via their branch application on Facebook. So, what they did was they created a virtual branch within Facebook. Now, of course, for most people around this room, that's, that's hardly revolutionary. You probably think that's pretty boring now. But what was interesting about that, because this was done so long ago, was it actually recognized the impact of social media um, on the business and actually as being the next generation of the single point of interface with your customer. Today, we are all thinking about digitization of banking services and financial services as ultimately the only way forward. Um, but Denise Bank was really the first people who developed this concept, and that then spurred developed market institutions such as the Royal Bank of Canada or ING to create direct institutions like ING Direct or First Direct in the UK. So really uh, a, a very interesting spread from, from the growth to the developed markets. Um, if you look at payments infrastructure, um, a, a very, very important and core part of most economies, um, what is interesting is, and again, I think it's astounding, and, and, and for me at least, that in the world, most settlement systems or payment settlement systems are typically T plus 5, T plus 3, T plus 2. Uh, so what, what does that mean? That means that when I send you money, from one bank account to another bank account uh, across two banks in a country, 
Typically, it takes two days for the money to first leave my account and then arrive in your account. Now, in an age of instant connectivity and technology, that's pretty astounding. And it wasn't a developed market that actually came up with the world's first instant settlement system. It was actually India. And about six or, I think it was six or seven years ago, India launched IMPS. And IMPS is, the, uh, is, is a mobile-based system uh, that was launched by the NPCI, which is the National Payment Clearing Corporation of India, which is a governmental institution, no less, uh, which allowed you to do real-time transfer of money from account to account. And not only that, but they allowed you to do it from a mobile phone to another mobile phone. Now, I, I want to remind people, this was, I think, about seven years ago when the original service was launched, right? Way before we talk about anything that's happening uh, in, in elsewhere in the world. And guess who are the new countries who've launched that service? Well, the UK finally launched faster payments uh, about four years ago, or three and a half years ago, uh, at, a, at a cost of over 200 million pounds. Of course, IMPS was developed below $50 million, uh, which again tells you the cost of development. And most recently, that technology has been rolled out in Singapore um, as, as real-time transfer. And real-time transfer is extremely important because from an infrastructure perspective, it spurs the development of a, a, a whole bunch of services which are extremely important uh, for populations. Um, if we look at microfinance, um, I touched on Grameen Bank. Um, Grameen Bank uh, was set up, I think, uh, almost 25 years ago um, out in Bangladesh um, and really served, really, uh, served the underserved. Um, in fact, they pioneered this concept of never lend money to the male in the family, lend money to the female in the family because typically they're more sensible people when it comes to finance. Um, and really uh, spurred the, the whole movement of microfinance, which has been an incredible developmental tool uh, across the world. Uh, now, what's really, really interesting is, where is Grameen Bank's newest market? And you'll see very, uh, for those of you who can see it, because it's a small logo at the bottom, it's actually Grameen America. So what, what's happening? Grameen Bank is now actually opened up in America and are actually using their lending models and their microfinance models to lend money in America, because one of the things that Grameen Bank has proven is the way they do loan disbursement and the way they do loan collection is extremely efficient relative to the regular banking sector. So then their non-performing loan ratios are significantly below equivalent institutions in most of those markets. Um, and so they really uh, created something pretty interesting uh, and, and are taking it into those developed mar markets, and, and you see a bunch of different institutions that are doing the same. And then finally, credit scoring, and this is actually right here, homegrown. Um, there is a, an unbelievable amount of innovation going on in credit scoring. Now, why is credit scoring so important? Because the whole uh, concept of access to financial services is linked to our uh, is linked to something called identity. You have to have an identity within the system in order to be able to get access to financial services. Now, different countries are solving the identity issue in different ways. India is solving it using biometrics, that every citizen's biometric information is stored in a central database, which allows you to be uniquely identified as that person. Um, in fact, Nigeria is going down that direction too. So man, many countries are, um, are moving and, and solving the identity 
problem. But with identity comes a second piece that, okay, it's, it's good to know who you are, then I need to have some history on you because without the history on you, I can't really give you money because I have no idea whether you're gonna repay my money or not. I have no idea what kind of a risk you are. Now in developed markets, we have these institutions uh, called credit rate scoring agencies which have existed for a long time and there's, there's a lot of data available but in most growth markets, we don't have that. And so we have to find a proxy for that. Um, and the only way you can do that is really to think about uh, finding other sources of data that give you that. And the, and the one source of data that has become really, really interesting for, for people to use is actually their, their phone usage data, their airtime data. Because actually the one thing that every individual, as we talked about right at the beginning, has is a cell phone. And actually, typically people do a lot of transacting on their cell phone, and ringing up somebody is actually a transaction. So if you, you need to think about it like that. And so you have companies like InVenture, which are, are, are based in Africa, which are really looking at integrating demographic and behavioral factors to, to predict credit worthiness. But they also have companies like Signify and First Access um, that are basically taking airtime data and actually Carl uh, from AFB will be here later on. He can talk a little bit about their, their lending product, which does the same thing. But what's very interesting is if you look at what the, the Signify platform, what does Signify do? It actually takes your data from your, your cell phone records and looks at who you call. And uh, I'll just give you two of the data points that they think about to just give you a th thought about how interesting this technology is. If I call uh, only one person every day, I am a worse risk than if I call 25 people every day. So there's a, there's the, that's the correlation that they've discovered. If I call a lot of people during the 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. time period, I'm a better risk than if I call a lot of people between 12 a.m. and 4 a.m. So these are the kind of inferences that you can make out of your calling patterns and the calling data, and then start to infer that into some form of credit scoring. Now, Nicole Stubbs, who, who uh, created uh, First Access, actually told me that they've, they've been running a pilot in Tanzania um, for the last one year where they've taken their, their model, which is taking the Airtel and MTN and, and Vodafone data, uh, because they're connected to all, all the telcos there, and they basically do the scoring in parallel with eight banks that are running a pilot with them. So what, they, what does that mean? That, that means the bank will use their traditional scoring methodology to lend money to customers. They will also at the same time score that customer, and then at the end of the year, they're comparing the two, two, two trajectories to see whose scoring methodology is better. And their methodology is over 50% better than bank methodology in terms of predicting, accurately predicting the risk of the, of, of the loan that's been given out. Uh, which is very, very interesting. Now, this is revolutionary, I think, for a number of reasons. One is that the single biggest cost of most financial institutions um, in the developed markets is actually their credit departments because they have these reams of people who effectively are doing manual processes. Once you start to think about automating these processes, you take a lot of cost out of the system and it becomes pretty interesting. So a, a great, another great example of where these technologies are coming, coming from. So... That's broadly what we're witnessing, and therefore, we, we are increasingly thinking about the growth markets today as being the, the world's product lab, being the place where really all the interesting stuff is gonna come for the future. Um, you know, basically, 
new business models uh, that are ultimately developed in, this, in these markets that have no legacy, that have high margins, that are high growth markets, uh, can be easily exported to the developed markets once the, once the actual product proposition is refined and the long-term benefits are made apparent uh, to the users. So, where do we, wh what else could we see coming out of this? Uh, we think we can see some radical e-commerce distribution models. Um, Facebook's getting into money. Uh, WhatsApp is getting into financial services because now you can actually send money on WhatsApp. I don't know if you've, you saw that recently. Uh, we will continue to see distribution being predominantly mobile. Uh, we will st start to see this concept of real-time clearing, which I talked about that came out of India, has moved to the UK, into Singapore, next is going to Australia. Uh, it's going to proliferate globally because real-time clearing will ultimately become a necessity. And capital markets themselves are ultimately going to become more retail-led. Um, and that's, I talked about the India example and NSE, and the reason the NSE is such a successful market is because it is a market that's predominantly uh, uh, used by retail investors as opposed to institutional investors. So um, I, I think I'm kind of out of time. I've, I've got a few minutes to take questions, but I think that's broadly uh, what I wanted to say. Uh, we're pretty excited about this. Um, if you go to our website, uh, www.apis.pe, uh, we have a paper that we've written on reverse innovation in financial services, uh, which looks uh, at this topic in quite a lot of detail um, because we've done quite a bit of research on this. Um, and and uh, you can download that paper off the website.